Welcome to Prestigious Minds, a podcast about the history of entrepreneurs, the good, the bad, and the ugly. I am Jeremiah, joined with my co-host Rob, and we have a few announcements before we jump into this week's episode. First, thank you for listening, and we hope you enjoy the show and that you're having a wonderful week. Secondly, you can find us on social media at pmindspod, that is the letter P-M-I-N-D-S... P-O-D, and that will be our Twitter handle, our Instagram, and then on Facebook you can find us at Prestigious Minds. I won't keep you any further from your reason why you're here, so let's jump into it. Good afternoon, Rob. What's going on, my man? Well, it's cold. We're in the middle of November now. It's been a while since we've recorded. We took a little short break. It's only been a few weeks for y'all, though, but it's been good trying to finish up Vanderbilt. I think we will be going back down to one episode a month due to the holiday season and other abilities that we have to take care of, so we won't be able to record quite as many episodes, but sorry, that was a little bit more of an update on the podcast, but how you doing, Rob? Pretty good, man. Pretty good. Not too bad at all quick uh, little note there we're probably gonna have a you know this this format new format is going to be into the spring i believe so we got both had some uh, some study to do and whatnot but you know we won't leave you we'll be here talking to you trevor if you've kept up with our vanderbilt series we had just finished up a segment about him as in cornelius vanderbilt and company getting involved in south america and we'll touch on a little bit more on that in this episode, we are now moving on to the family vacation, the grand tour of Europe that Vanderbilt took his whole family on to experience the old world and put America's successful... The American success story on display, maybe. That's where you're going with that. Yeah, yeah. Okay. I could not think of the word. That's why I'm here, man. <laughs> we have somewhat drawn out the Vanderbilt saga a little bit. I mean, he's a larger-than-life character, I feel like, and he's also one of the first if not the first major business tycoon to come from America. We dove a little bit more into him than we did our previous people. I don't know if we would do this with everyone. I know we wouldn't do this for everyone, just because not everyone is quite that fascinating, but I also feel like the podcast may have taken a little bit more of a biographical history turn, more so than what the original intention was. So we'll try to bring it back around a little bit whenever we start diving into future series. Getting back on track with Vanderbilt. Just to disclose our future episodes is roughly going to be this one and two other ones to finish out Vanderbilt, which I think would bring us to seven or eight episodes in total, maybe nine. These will also probably be a little bit shorter. Don't want to read you a book, so to say. Vanderbilt has recently made some money off selling his Southern Route steamer and stock of the accessory transit. Now he is ready to plan this vacation. In this vacation, he had a ship built, largest of its kind, called the North Star. The total cost of this, I believe in the 1850s, was $500,000, a half a million dollars, pretty expensive. Weighed in at 2,500 tons and was 270 feet long. Had all the bells and whistles and some of the most modern engineering and manufacturing processes they had available at the time. Wow. So it's like a, I mean, I've seen people go on those big coach buses on vacation. Imagine building 
one of the largest ships to just to go on vacation with. It, basically a cruise ship. Yeah, he built his own cruise ship. 270 feet long. That's a, that's a long boat for one for one family. Just to boast about the engineering, there was two lever beam steam engines powered by four 24 feet long boilers. Wow. Those are big boilers. Those are big boilers. Yeah. Another note on the interior of the ship was he had giant portraits painted on the ceiling of the dining room. These portraits included likeness of George Washington, Benjamin Franklin, and Henry Clay. Before Vanderbilt set sail, he orchestrated a deal with Minthorne Tompkins to sell the the Staten Island Ferry, along with several tracts of land on Staten Island for $600,000. This was his, I guess, his first major venture as a businessman on his own, right? This did not include Vanderbilt Landing, which is where his mother still lived at the time. Let's get on to Europe. He invited his family and or told them that they would attend. This included all his children and grandchildren, I think minus his daughter, Francis, and his son, Cornelius Jeremiah. I think Francis was sick and Cornelius Jeremiah was a uh, drunk, as we had talked about before. They get over to Europe and they start in England and they work their way down the coast. Whenever they arrive in Britain on June 1st, they visited the Elite Royal Yacht Club. And during their stop, Vanderbilt did not seek out any political, literary, or artistic celebrities, as one might imagine, of his stature. Instead, him and his son George wanted to get the taste of middle-class British life by boarding a public conveyance from London to the horse races at Ascot. That's pretty fascinating. Yeah, it seems like they're just, they're like, we're going to travel to Europe, but we want to see how people are slumming it. You know, we're going to go. I wouldn't say they were slumming it. <laughs> Middle class uh, England at the time. I'm not sure, like, exactly the conditions, but it couldn't have been very, well, it probably wasn't much different than what he's used to. I mean, the guy was a middle class guy for a long time. I'm I sure. I wonder if he did that because he was, he was kind of cheap on certain things. I don't think so because Vanderbilt, when it came to his pleasures, did not cheap out. Yeah, but it was hit. Like, I wonder if it was because... Well, I mean, know, George was also his favorite son. You have to remember that. Right. Well, that is true. But I'm like, oh, I don't mind spending money on me, but my family, we're all going to stay in this, uh, you know, Hotel 8 here. See, that's kind of not true, though, because he had this huge luxury steam cruise ship he built. Yeah. And he didn't necessarily invite his family. He kind of forced them to come along. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Funny Just imagine enough. like, hey, we're going, like, but I have no, we're going. Yeah, they depart from England after going up to Southampton. They cruise along the coast of Norway and beyond to the Baltic Sea, Russia, and Denmark. And on the Gulf of Finland, Vanderbilt entertained Grand Duke Constantine, the second son of the Tsar, a high admiral of the Russian Navy. Wow, he did, I guess, run into some people of grand stature. His family kind of toured the the palace, and him and his wife, Cornelius and Sophia, went on the royal yacht and transferred him to the emperor's carriages, where they went and visited St. Petersburg and the Winter Palace and the Hermitage, as well as the relatively small palace belonging to Vanderbilt's new friend, the Grand Duke, Constantine. They kind of got a little royal tour of uh, the Grand Duke's local, you know, provinces, I suppose. Yeah. Continuing on... They steamed out of Russia on June 29th and proceeded to Copenhagen, and then later visited 
the palace of Rosenberg, the ancient seat of the kings of Denmark. Continuing down, they went to the French city of La Havre. I don't know how that's pronounced because I'm not French. Chules, which was the reverend on board, noted that all the party boarded the train for Paris, save for Vanderbilt himself, who being, quote-unquote, indisposed, chose to remain for a quiet day aboard the yacht. Dr. Lindsley, in his diary, shrewdly noted that the Commodore lagged behind, complaining of lethargy, ministered to by a young servant girl who would quickly cure him better than I ever could. I don't know what that's supposed to mean, but... I think, yeah, I think we can kind of glean some information from that. Yeah, well, we do know that he liked to hang out at the uh, Defluzzi house. <laughs> yeah, yeah. All throughout his life, right? Even even on a royal cruise with this family, couldn't couldn't save himself. No. On the morning of the 29th, as a steamer pushed through the Bay of Biscay off the coast of Portugal, under both steam and cell power, a crewman was lost overboard and drowned. So this was whenever they were leaving, I believe, to come home. And a quick side note here, they did visit Italy and Florence and Venice, they couldn't actually stop in Crete or Italy because they didn't have the proper papers or the entire government. Like, there was something going on there where there was a miscommunication. They were going to have them docked for two or three days to get the paperwork straightened out, and Vanderbilt, not wanting to postpone his trip, decided not to stop. This is only really of note for one reason or another, is the majority of, like, his crew and, like, the people who worked on the ship were devout Catholics, so you can see how they were kind of bummed about this. The rest of his family, however, not necessarily him, but obviously his wife and most of his children were pretty devout Christians, so that's why you had the reverend on board. Oh, nice. The the Catholics wanted to visit Italy. Makes sense. I mean, it makes total sense, yeah. I mean, I wouldn't mind visiting Italy and the Vatican. Sounds oh, pretty yeah. cool to me. It does. Man, I'd like to go to that, tu- that uh, uh, Tuscany, you know, those rolling hills. They look, it looks beautiful. And that's where a lot of uh, uh, European people go and British people go to take vacations because it's so pretty. Well, I don't, I, I probably would too if I was able. Yeah, I've heard it's like us going to Gatlinburg and renting a cabin. It's kind of how it is. You'll you'll rent a a villa or like a house, a small house. That sounds pretty nice. Yeah. Okay. So back to the young man lost overboard. They were they were going so quickly that they it took them a little while to slow down and go back and find him. Obviously, they searched for several hours. They couldn't find him. His name was Robert Ogden Flint, and he had just been promoted to the rank of quartermaster only a few days before this. Tragic. They ended up going back towards America, and Vanderbilt, along with his son and various other Vanderbilt son-in-laws, contributed to his uh, funeral and burial. On September 23rd, Chules noted the arrival home on Friday when the North Star rounded Sandy Hook, and they were back home. Wow, what a quick trip. How long was the trip, anyway? Well, it wasn't a quick trip. We just kind of breezed through it. Yeah. I mean, it started in early June and ended in late September. So you're probably talking about two months, two and a half months. No, three months. Yeah, it's a good summer. Yeah, yeah. Actually, wait, June, July, August, September. You're looking at probably three and a half months, almost four months. Wow, that's pretty cool. I mean, if you really want to know what they did, you can read more about it. I, I think that uh, Chules, which was a reverend, he's how we know all this is because he documented the entire trip and he actually released it as a book the following year. Wow. 
which is kind of nice because that's why we have this, you know, neat chronological event order of what happened. So, yeah, that was the family trip. A little bit of more of a history lesson there. Nothing very significant about it business-wise. But when they arrived back home, Vanderbilt had some scores to settle, which I think we foreshadowed earlier episodes of this. There's two men he left in charge of his accessory transit company. He paid and sold out to not do business on the Panama route and Southern route, but he still had a deal with the accessory transit or owning it and transporting people from the East Coast to California. We will dive into exactly what happened to him on that when we get back from a short break. Go get some water. You know, hydrate. Always good for you. Thank you for listening to this week's episode. We hope you are enjoying it. There is one little thing that we ask that you may do for us, and that is click the listen link in the show notes to subscribe for free on your platform of choice. Really appreciate it, and thank you so much. And we'll get back to it. Welcome back to this episode. We're about to give you the summary. Uh, well, the summary of who screwed Vanderbilt over on his business ventures, at least this time around, whenever they got back from their vacation in Europe. And then we'll discuss what it means for the future of Vanderbilt. There's two people that we are going to primarily focus on outside of Vanderbilt on this little segment, and that is New York's Charles Morgan and San Francisco's Cornelius Kingsland Garrison. Garrison came from a line of Hudson River sailors, He was trained as a civil engineer, ended up opening a banking house in Panama, also a huge business benefiting from the westbound traffic of human beings and eastbound traffic of gold. He was a part of the slave trade. Oh, okay. Or at least funding it, so. Right. And then he ended up on the board of the Accessory Transit when he was recruited by a San Francisco agent for a salary of $60,000 per year. And Vanderbilt himself encouraged Garrison to accept the post. Okay. The reason why is because Garrison was considered ruthless and hyperactive in his affairs, very similar to Vanderbilt. And so this is why Vanderbilt encouraged him to join. Now, Charles Morgan, on the other hand, developed a successful business in American imports and exports between the South and the West Indies. He also pioneered a route between New Orleans and Galveston. This is kind of where he and Vanderbilt butted heads. Eventually thought it would be better to become allies, and this is where Commodore recommended him for the Accessory Transit's Board of Directors. Both of these people are hand, I wouldn't say hand-picked, but they were both encouraged by Vanderbilt to take a position on the Board of Directors for Accessory Transit. A few days later... After Vanderbilt left, Morgan and Garrison both stopped paying Vanderbilt and ran the accessory transit as their own. Obvious problems are going to occur here when Vanderbilt arrives back home and realizes he's not getting paid. He declares war on Morgan and Garrison through the courts, but also on their private businesses, like their independent ventures outside of the accessory transit. He sets up a rival business doing the same thing against his own company, more or less. He also uses his position on the board of directors of the Accessory Transit to sway the stock market to lower the stock price. Then a revolution breaks out in Nicaragua. A dude named William Walker, who is a native who's led a rebellion in Baja, California, and won, and then got (laughs) drove out and arrested for treason trying to start a war. But somehow he 
I guess, did not get put to death for that. Here is Nicaragua successfully creates a shill government after leading a coup of the local government in Nicaragua. Anyway, not to veer off track, Morgan and Garrison team up with him to get exclusive monopoly rights to do business in Nicaragua as a transit company. This causes the stock market price to go way up. Vanderbilt, you know, still having a bunch of shares, sees the high price and realizing that they can't obviously continue to do business. So business is somewhat struggling already because there's a war going on. The general public that is traveling from the East Coast to the West Coast doesn't really want to be a part of that. So they've been going the Panama route and now on Vanderbilt's route. Vanderbilt continues to cut prices you know, driving a wage war, as well as using his position to make money on the sale of accessory transit stock while it's high, before news gets out that they failed to secure a loan from America, whether I think, I think it might have been the American government, you know, kind of like an embassy kind of thing. Due to this, the accessory transit stock price tanked, which did not hurt Vanderbilt all that much because he didn't really care if the accessory transit tanked or not because he wanted his money. He did eventually win the suit and was owed all the money that they didn't pay him. A dude named Joseph L. White ended up picking up the Accessory Transit's parent company for pennies on the dollar, which was the American Atlantic and Pacific Ship Canal Company. Along with Accessory Transit being basically in tatters at this point, Garrison and Morgan reached a deal with Vanderbilt after defeating Garrison and Morgan. Vanderbilt still had his cash flow from Aspinwall and Roberts. And we didn't really talk about this, but Aspinwall and Roberts were people that were paying him anti-competing money. Basically, if you pay me an annual fee, I won't put you out of business by going into a business against you. He would continue getting money from that for several months, as well as the accessory transit, which kind of lingered around here and there for another four years. It basically was bankrupt at that point. Vanderbilt did not care about making money. He cared about putting these two people out of business. And I believe he was successful in that to a very high degree. Yeah, it seems like, I mean, Vanderbilt's going to do Vanderbilt things, right? Yeah, he basically declared war and was like, you know what? I'm going to put you out of business. And the thing is, I'm not just going to, I'm not going to do this at my expense. Like, Like, it is at his expense, but he has so much money in other places that he's like, I'm willing to take a loss here as long as it means that you lose. Yeah, I'm sure he's a little bitter, but he's like, this is going to be fun for me. It's going to suck for you. Imagine having your company kind of get stole out from under you. Then you're just like, you know what? That's fun. That's cool. I'm going to bankrupt it. It's going to ruin you. It did just that. Got any other words and thoughts? Yeah, I mean, the this Garrison fellow, I mean, when you mentioned his salary... You know, with the uh, the San Francisco, he was a San Francisco agent for the, I guess, the uh, accessory transit firm. It was sixty thousand dollars per year. That's two over two million dollars a year in today's money. That's like imagine you have two million dollars per year, and you're like, you know what? I'm going to screw over the guy that's helped me get this money. He was already a businessman, but. I guess whenever you see an opportunity, you take it back then. I mean, dog eat dog world out there. But I guess whenever you say it like that, some people are like, oh, well, Vanderbilt would have done something similar. Vanderbilt, however, as ruthless as he was a businessman, he was not a cheat. He was very pragmatic. That's what it was. He, he wasn't, he was ruthless when he had to be. A lot of times it was because people were screwing him over or like they're screwing him over first or they're threatening. He's like, well, I'm just going to do this. Yeah, don't like mess it, with the Commodore, man. No, you don't. I mean, Vanderbilt wasn't the greatest of guys, but he was an old, salty sailor. That's what he was. We continue to be throughout his life. I mean... Even in his old age. Yeah. 
very old ages, it became uh, dementia-ridden through to uh, syphilis that he caught. Oh, I wonder how he got that. It couldn't have been visiting the edge of the docks or anything, you know? Yeah, those uh, those brothels. Okay, well, I think we're going to wrap this one up. A little offbeat on this episode, but I don't think it's horrible. We will be coming back to you again and picking up where we left off. This time, we're going to go talk about the transatlantic trade. Actually, we're not really going to talk about that too much. It's going to be more of a footnote. We're actually going to transition more into how Vanderbilt started in railroad. Well, not how he started, but how he's known for railroads. Surprisingly, he was not involved in railroads that long before he died. The next episode may actually be the last one. Mm, Maybe. Maybe. All right. Well, uh, until next time, good sir. Yes, this has been Prestigious Minds. Thank you for listening to this episode of Prestigious Minds. That concludes today's episode. If you've enjoyed the show, let us know how we can improve by leaving us a review on Apple Podcast. You can find us on Instagram and Twitter at pmindspod. And go give us a follow over there where we discuss and share photographs, videos, and anything visual related to the podcast. And thank you for listening prestigious minds.